John chapter 13 in the Word of God today, please. John chapter 13, when you find it, stand to your feet with me and we will read God's Word together. John chapter 13, we've read this before, the the series is learning to love. We're trying to learn to love like Jesus loved us. The text is verse 34 and 5, and if you would look and follow me in God's Word. The Lord Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. Notice the comparison. We are to love one another, but our comparison is as He has loved us. So that's a high, high standard of love, is it not? And then He says, that's the mark of a Christian. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Turn over to the next chapter, chapter 15 and verse 12. This is in the same setting here, and the Lord Jesus Christ is meeting with the disciples. It's after the Lord's Supper. It's after the communion. It's the last evening of His life here on the earth before His crucifixion. Verse 12 of chapter 15, he repeats it. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if, there's a condition in there, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you, and the commandment is what? That you love Him like He loves us. So, if you put that together logically, the commandment is, I'm the friend of the Lord Jesus Christ if I love other people like He loved me. Now, go back to chapter 14, and he says that three different times. Verse 15, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. In other words, obedience to the Word of God is evidence of our love. And the love there is agape love. It's an action. It's a behavior. It's not a feeling. If you'll go down to verse 21, he, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And then if you go down to verse 23, he, will, he says, if a man love me, He will keep my words. So over and over, it's just a drumbeat of repetition of His commandment is to us to love one another. Thank you. You may be seated. So it's the night of His death, and Jesus said, I have a new commandment for you that I've not talked to you men about before. The commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. If love were a feeling, and most Americans interpret love as a feeling, some sort of emotional response, if love were a feeling, then you can't command a feeling. I can't say to someone, you feel this way or you don't feel this way. You can't command a feeling, an emotion. But you can sure command an action or you can command a behavior, and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing right here. I command you to love, that's agape love, 
That is an unselfish love, a love that acts in behalf of other people rather than a love of what I'm going to get out of it. And so he makes that command to us to love people through behaviors. That agape love, as I said in verse number 35, Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, said, the mark of the Christian is love. It's not the little fish sign on the back of the car or the cross on your lapel. The mark, the identification of the Christian is agape love, love that reaches out for others. Now, our times, more than any time maybe in recent memory or recent history, call for a revival of love. That's why I'm preaching this series of sermons. I'll have to be honest with you. Some of the most boring sermons I've ever had to sit through in my life have been somebody talking about how we ought to love one another because it was just a repetition of the obvious or something that I've heard of 10,000 times. And so when I preach on love, I really want to preach on it. I really want to just hit you right in the heart with it. On the other hand, I don't want to just get up here and say, we just need to love each other over and over repetitiously. I want you to think with me today about what, how relevant this really is. It's the most relevant thing we could be doing as a church, to learn to love one another. That will communicate with the people in our culture. Because we live in a time of fear. Your neighbors and your friends are afraid. They're probably not going to say to you over the fence or standing around a barbecue grill, you know what, I'm really afraid right now. But in the heart of every person, a thinking person, I think in this country today, there lurks a certain amount of fear. I filled up my tank a couple of days ago. It cost me $50, $50 and some cents. And I just have a car. I don't have a big SUV that would cost even more. I looked on the, I saw that, and I thought, my soul, have I got a hole in the tank? <laughs> and I looked at the pump, and it said $3.23 per gallon. And then I got in my car, heard the news that the inflation is going to be even greater in the coming days. See, that, that creates. Uh, puts in a trepidation in our hearts, does it not? We hear about shortages. My wife goes to the grocery store, and she says, I've never seen this before. Every time I go, there's something I want, and we don't have it, and they always had it before. Just little signs, but people are talking about it. People know. We got this vaccine mandate, and, and I, I was vaccinated. So I'm, I, I, this is not an anti-vax message. But I'll tell you what, I'm anti-mandate. I am strongly against it. We have people right in the church that are getting ready to lose their jobs over this craziness that's coming out of Washington right now. You know, if I understand the Word of God, not some regulation, if I understand the Bible, I have sovereignty over my body. And when I lose sovereignty over my body, I don't have any freedom at all. Mm -hmm. 
we had a deacons meeting Thursday night, and we talked about the effects of COVID on the church. And of course, we have legitimate concerns. We've had three or four of our own people now who have died. We have other people who are very ill, people we were very concerned whether you would make it, and you're back here, praise be to the Lord today. And so there's a legitimate concern that we all have. But we also know that this fear-mongering and this hysteria, this misinformation that we're constantly hearing, it's, it's affected our church. Our attendance is down. Uh, many of the ministries that we had, we weren't able to have them for months at a time. And so I, I, I thought as I sat in my office at home and here, and I thought, Lord, what can I do that will help us to really get the church back on track like we've been for 50 years before this happened? And I kept being impressed. I believe it was the Holy Spirit that impressed me. I was impressed that will lead the people to return, have a revival of love of God's people among themselves, first of all, and then we'll get on to other things after that. So all this month I've been preaching about it. Because, you see, this is not the America I grew up in, the America that I know. This is the America of fear and the America of mistrust and misinformation and broken trust. And in this climate, Christians, it's more important than it's ever been. If we're going to touch an unsaved world, we better learn how to love each other and how to love them. Now, the challenge is that love takes time, doesn't it? We live in a frantic, hurried, superficial world, or at least that's the world I live in. <laughs> People are always in a hurry. I'd like to talk to you right now, but I, I don't have time right now, Rev. And so we just skim through life. Our challenge is that love takes time. Love takes time. It takes investing myself and other people. And usually those opportunities come when it's not very convenient. And I believe, though, that people will get up I believe they'll dress up. I believe they'll drive 50 miles to come to a church where they know that the Spirit of God is working and that they're loved by the people in that church. So what does love look like? Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard this read. It seems like the only time Christians read this is at weddings. <laughs> I don't think that's why it was inspired primarily. It might be a secondary reason, but it was for all of life, wasn't it? And this is a portrait of love. Here is a picture drawn by the Holy Spirit of God through the holy men that wrote the Scripture. And this is a portrait of what love ought to look like. This is what love looks like in the Scripture. And I go to chapter 13. This is the famous love chapter. Our King James uses the word charity, which is probably the most accurate translation of the word love that you could possibly use. The word charity here is a generous, unselfish concern for other people. Nine times it's used. 
a generous and unselfish concern for other people. I go down to verse number four. Charity or love suffereth long, so it's patient. Are you like the lady who prayed, Lord, give me patience and do it right now? You know, that's, that's the impatient, hurried-up world that we find ourselves living in. By the way, the word there, the, the verb form of that, it means patience with people. It's not talking about the circumstances of life. It's not talking about not blowing your horn when the light turns green. It's talking about being patient with people who try you <laughs> who test you and who interfere with your plans. And then in verse 4, it continues, love is kind. There are three or four different lists in the New Testament of Christian character. There's this one right here, the love chapter. Then there's the being filled with the Spirit chapter of Galatians chapter 5. And it mentions kindness there as well. And then there's one in 2 Peter and it also mentions kindness. Every single listing of love in the New Testament puts the word kindness in there as a modifier. Love is kind. Mark Twain said that love, or that pay, uh, kindness rather, is a language that the deaf can hear and the blind can read. A language that the deaf can hear and the blind can read. Kindness. I pray, Lord, help me to be a kind man. It doesn't always come naturally. I need the Lord to give me that power, that anointing to do that. Then it says that love is not envious. Envy is the sin of those who think that others have too much and they have too little. It's when your family is having some real serious problems and here's somebody's family and they're just being blessed all over the place and you look at them and, well, why is my family not like that? See, that's the tendency, the temptation toward enviousness. How do I respond to the good fortune and the blessing of other people? And then verse 4 again, love vaunteth not itself, meaning it's not boastful. The Greek word for boastful is a windbag. You know windbags? You ever been around one? Sure you have. And love is not a windbag. It doesn't do all the talking about themselves incessantly. You ever heard the parable of the turtle? There was a turtle who wanted to go to Florida for the winter. And he could, it says it's too far to walk. And so he was talking to two geese there by the pond. He said, I've got a piece of rope here. If you put one end of the rope in your, in your bill and you put the other end of the rope in your bill and you would clamp down on that, I've got these vice-like jaws. I'll clamp down on it. And, and when you fly to Florida, I'll go with you. And they said, we'll help you. We kind of like you, Brother Turtle. And so they started flying. And everything was going well until somebody on the ground said, wow, what a wonderful idea. Who thought of that? And the turtle said, I did. <laughs> You've met that person, haven't you? They take credit for everything, even the things they don't have any reason to take credit about. Verse 4 again, love is not puffed up. It's not vain. It's not conceited. It's not proud of itself. It doesn't have an exalted opinion. 
verse 5. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. That simply means love is courteous. If I'm treating you with love, behaviors, actions, then I'm treating you with courtesy. When you think of discourtesies, what are you talking about? You're talking about rudeness, aren't you? The guy who cuts you off in traffic, the person who hasn't time to open a door for somebody or to say please and thank you and those little courtesies that people used to do. We try to train our children still to do them here at Florence Christian because we think those are important. It makes you get out of yourself and think about other people. That's what courtesy is about. Not many people think of that, but courtesy is a Christian virtue. It is thinking of others rather than just always being so me-centered. And then Verse 5, it seeketh not her own. It doesn't always insist on having its own way. And in verse number 5, it's not easily provoked, which means I don't quickly fly off the handle. I'm not easily angered. Some of us know what it's like to spend a lifelong battle fighting temper. Henry Drummond, the great preacher of yesteryear said, the peculiarity of ill temper is that it is the vice of the virtuous. It is often the only blot on an otherwise noble character, people who lose their temper. In verse 6, it says, or in verse 5, rather, another one, love thinketh no evil. So it's not resentful or suspicious. It doesn't keep records of other people's failures. I've observed, I've preached this and used this illustration before with you. I've met people through the years that I've pastored, and they carried this invisible bag on their side. I think they slept with it. They had it everywhere they went. And every time anybody failed them or made a mistake or anything, they picked that up and put it in the bag. And 20 years later, they can tell you about somebody else's failure. That's what it's talking about. Love doesn't do that. Warren Wiersbe said he knew a man one time who kept notes on every wrong that people did against him. And he said he was the most miserable man I ever met. Well, sure he was. And the Bible says love doesn't think about evil. We're willing to forgive and forget to not be resentful and to go on. And then... Verse 6 again, love rejoiceth not in iniquity. Iniquity is lawlessness. Lawlessness. It's the King James word for lawlessness. And we don't rejoice in somebody else's breaking the rules or their being caught breaking the rules or their failures. That's, that is the substance of, of gossip, isn't it? Strangely quiet in here. And then, verse 6, love rejoiceth in the truth. It's joyful when justice and truth prevail. Look at verse 7 and 8. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, and love never faileth. And it tells me there are four things about love. It beareth all things. Bears up under anything, the strain of life and the circumstances of life, everything that comes. But if I have my heart full of the love of God, the agape love, it bears up under that. 
It believes all things. It believes the best of every person. It endureth all things. The hope never fades when you have your heart full of love. And it never weakens. Look in verse 8. It never fails. It never becomes obsolete. It never comes to an end. It's never out of date. That's why I think it's the most relevant subject I could be talking to you about in the climate of our times right now as, as things are happening in the United States. What love looks like in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. But number two, my second point is this. What, is it, what does it look like in the church? What does it look like in the church? Now, I didn't take a passage of Scripture for this because I've been observing now for a long time people's behavior at church. And I think I know what it takes to have a warm, loving church that just reaches out and grabs people and they want to be there. They, they're inspired by the atmosphere itself. A famous preacher of the past said, atmosphere breeds revival. And I, I think that's so true. I think most churches are never going to experience revival because they haven't warmed the water up for it. You know, you've got to get the water hot before you put the tea bag in. And the atmosphere has to be a warm and loving atmosphere if we're going to see the power of God work in the lives of people in our church. And so I have some rules for worship. They're not legalistic rules. Don't get all bothered. But there are behaviors that I've stood right here on this platform and watched and observed. And I know if we would practice these things, it would do a lot. You would enjoy coming to church so much more than sometimes you do if you would just observe these things. I wish you could take them down, but I'm going to give them to you too fast for that. But Ryan is working on a bookmark, and I'm going to put them on a bookmark, give every one of you a bookmark, you can put it in your Bible. And in the days ahead, I want you to memorize these. I want you, in fact, I'm thinking about every time when I do a welcome, reminding you of one of these, because we got to really get this, I mean, we got to get this down deep in our head, okay? I want you to notice that each of these begin with I will. It's not like, well, preacher, I heard you. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And it's not like I'm going to try, or I can do that, but I'm not going to commit myself to do it, to say I will. So these are goals that I have for our church in terms of making us a loving church. Now, I've been preaching the theory, the doctrine, doctrinal part of this. Now, today, the very practical part of it, all right? Number one. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving, Psalm 100 and verse 4. In other words, an attitude. Come to church with the right attitude. If you have a fight on the way with the family, stop out there and have a prayer meeting before you come in. Huh? But come to church thanking the Lord. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. And I've got a second attitude. I will rejoice. The Bible says over and over and over, Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice. Psalm 122, 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Now, you don't always feel like coming to church, 
But give yourself a little joy talk on the way, huh? Joy is that cheerful, calm delight in all the circumstances of life. I stayed up too late last night watching a ball game. No, it wasn't a one, no. I didn't watch that 45 to 14 debacle. What I watched was the Atlanta Braves win the National League pennant. And it was over at a quarter to 12, and that's way past my bedtime on Saturday night. So when I got up today, the joy of the Lord was not reigning in my heart. (laughs) But you know what? It's an attitude. You can adjust that, can you not? But don't come to church. Well, I didn't get enough sleep last night, but I really enjoyed that ball game. But boy, I'm going to endure Bill Monroe today. (laughs) No, no, no. Come with the attitude of thanksgiving and an attitude of joy. I will rejoice even in my problems. Number three, I'll use the pre-service time to fellowship with God's people. Ah, instead of walking in and plopping down and folding your arms, we can, we can use that time. It would be fine with me if nobody sat down until Jim started the music. That we use that time to, we just don't get enough time with each other. Number four, I will smile. Digging down deep now, am I not? A smile says, I accept you. It really does, doesn't it? I will shake hands. It says, you're welcome here. We're glad you came. I will greet someone I do not know if I have opportunity. You don't have to run across the auditorium, but if they're nearby, you stop and talk to them. Rules for worship. I will say something positive, number seven, to somebody every time I attend. Number eight, I will look for people who look like they might need a friend. That gets me out of myself, doesn't it? Number nine, I will expect God to work in the service and in my life today. Number 10, I will sing with the congregation, Psalm 30 and verse 4, Psalm 92 and verse 1, Psalm 95 and verse 1. I'm telling you those references because I want you to understand the Bible commands us to sing when we come to church. You say, I can't sing. Neither can a jaybird, but God made him. Everybody's not a canary, are they? Some of them don't sing very pleasantly, but It's a joyful noise to the Lord. I will sing with the congregation. Number 11, I will keep the building clean because it's the house of God. I will show respect to it. Number 12, I will remember what it's like to be new. And I will invite visitors to come on and sit with us. Number 13, I will pray for my pastor as he preaches God's word. Number 14, I will pray for the salvation of souls today. Number 15, I will move to give people a seat, Romans 12, 10, preferring one another, rather than let them feel conspicuous as they walk up and down the aisle looking for a place. I will stay in fellowship after the service for five whole minutes. I will work to make FBT a place where everyone is loved. 
I am here to give and serve as well as to receive and be served. If in the Bible they greeted one another with a holy kiss, maybe one holy hug per lifetime would be okay. And if I really get blessed, I'll look both ways, I'll put my head down, and I'll whisper, amen. <laughs> we don't want to get anybody carried away here, right? Okay. And if the Lord really speaks to my heart, I'll seal the deal with him at the altar during the invitation. That's what love looks like in a church. What does love look like in your life? Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. In verse 4, Paul has talked about being partakers of the divine nature, meaning we've enjoyed salvation. Christ has come into our life. The divine nature is now in, in our hearts. And he talks about Christian character in an individual person's life. And here's what he says in verse 5. Now, follow, follow with me in your Bible. Give all diligence to this. I mean, you need to stop, concentrate, work on this diligence. Give diligence. Add to your faith virtue. And I picture a Christian's character like a pyramid. And at the very base of the pyramid is faith. That's your salvation experience. That's when you decided, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ with my life and with my soul. Then it says virtue next. Virtue is godly character. It's righteousness. It's living so that people know you're, you're a Christian. And then the next one is knowledge. We're learning God's Word. That's why we come here. We go to Sunday school. We read our Bible. We have our quiet time. We're gaining in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we go from knowledge here. We go to, uh, let's see, temperance, self-control, a self-discipline, if you will. And then we're back to patience where we were a moment ago. Love is long-suffering in 1 Corinthians 13. And then we go to godliness. And you see, we're growing. This, this person got saved down there at the very bottom of the pyramid, but they're growing in their Christian faith. They're becoming stronger, more knowledgeable. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And we talked about kindness already, 1 Corinthians 13. Again, it repeats it. And then to brother, brotherly kindness, and that's the Philadelphia Phileo love we talked about in previous marriages, or messages. And to, then to brotherly kindness, charity, or the agape love. The love that with no thought of reward for ourselves, we act in the best interest and on behalf of other people. And notice the next verse in your Bible. If you'll do these things, you will not be unfruitful. You will live a fruitful life, the fruits of the Spirit, the ability to lead people to Christ. All of that will be a part of your life. You will be a fruitful Christian, not a barren Christian. Carl Menninger is a man I've read much of his work. 
He had a clinic in Wichita, Kansas called the Menninger Clinic. It was the ultimate place for people with real serious mental illnesses to go. And I guess back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was probably the most respected mental health facility probably in the country at that time. They treated the most severe cases of mental illness. Menninger was not a Christian, but here's what he wrote, and I'm quoting, love cures people, both the ones who give it and the ones who receive it. He said, and I'm quoting, if you're severely depressed, lock the door behind you, go across the street, find somebody that's in need and do something to help them. And he repeated, love cures people, those who, need, who receive it and those who give it. And if you're a Christian today and you're a believer in Christ and you've experienced the love of God, you heard the gospel that Christ Jesus died for your sins, why did he come and die for your sins? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He died for your sins because he loves you. You hear me quote that almost every Sunday, but please, please stop. Be diligent about it. Think with me. Don't just space me out. God's love is the whole motivation of the gospel. There would be no gospel if God did not love us. Not a feeling as he looked down at the world, not an emotional attachment to us, but an action. He loved us so much he sent his only begotten son. And the son then died for our sins, an action. And we who have been saved, we know how true it is that love cures because we were cured. We were cured in the place where we were most sick. We were cured in our souls because of God's love for us and because of His Son who came and died as our substitute and took our place. And the motivation for the gospel itself is what I've been preaching to you about for four weeks, the love of God, that we would love each other like He loved us. I want you to bow your head and stand quietly to your feet, if you will, please.